welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Today we're bringing you a special bonus episode, brought to you in collaboration with the folks over at the Legal Writers Collective. Go on and check them out on our website or at legalwriterscollective.com. Hope you enjoy! The Queen and Reeve, Court of Appeal for Ontario. On appeal from the sentence imposed on June 22, 2018, by Justice Antonio Scarica of the Superior Court of Justice sitting without a jury. Appeal Justice Fairburn. Part 1 Overview. The appellant ran a financial investment company and had a good reputation in the financial industry. He got into financial difficulty in 2007. Over the next two and a half years, he perpetrated a large-scale fraud on 41 unsuspecting clients. As found by the sentencing judge, he used the victim's money for a number of purposes, including business and personal expenses, as well as payments to his ex-wife to fulfill a large outstanding support order. As is often the case in classic Ponzi schemes, the appellant also used some of the victim's money to pay back other victims, ones who were becoming suspicious about what had happened to their money. By taking the money of some to pay others, the appellant successfully avoided coming to the attention of police for a significant period of time. At the end of the day, the victims were out over $10 million, and even larger sums had been put at risk. The appellant was convicted of fraud over $5,000 and theft over $5,000. He was sentenced to the maximum term of 14 years imprisonment. Given that he had already spent 71 months in pre-sentence custody, Council agreed that he should receive credit in the amount of 8.9 years. He was provided with an additional 1.1 year of credit due to what the trial judge deemed harsh conditions during the 71 months he had spent in remand in accordance with the principle laid down in the Queen and Duncan, 2016 Ontario Court of Appeal, 754. A restitution order pursuant to Section 738 Sub 1 Sub A of the Criminal Code was issued in the amount of $10,887,885. In addition, a fine in lieu of forfeiture was ordered in the same amount as the restitution order. The appellant was given 10 years following the completion of his term of imprisonment to pay the fine. In default of payment of the fine, pursuant to section 462.37 sub 4 sub a sub 7, the appellant was ordered to serve the maximum term of 10 years imprisonment. The fine in lieu of forfeiture is to be reduced by any amount paid pursuant to the restitution order. The appellant pursues both a conviction and sentence appeal. Given the time sensitivity attaching to the sentence appeal, the court agreed to hear it first. On May 29, 2020, leave to appeal the sentence was granted, the appeal was granted, and the sentence was varied to 10 years incarceration. No other aspect of the sentence was appealed. Accordingly, the sentence was affirmed in all other respects. Written reasons were to follow. These are those reasons. Part 2. The Reasons for Sentence The sentencing judge spent a good portion of his reasons reviewing the devastating impact that the fraud had on the victims. About this there is no dispute. The sentencing judge described the victims as disabled, the elderly, the grieving spouse, the emotionally vulnerable, the close longtime friends, the loyal client, and complete strangers. 
Many of them lost their life savings to the appellant. The sentencing judge concluded that there were no mitigating circumstances operative in this case. In contrast, he concluded that virtually every aggravating circumstance recognized by the criminal code and the case law was present, pointing to the amount of the fraud and large number of victims, the potential to adversely affect investor confidence in the financial market, the fact that the appellant took advantage of the high regard in which he was held in the investment community, breaching the trust of his clients and the industry licensing requirements, the appellant's lack of remorse and empathy for his victims, as further discussed below, the serious victim impact, the length of time over which the fraud had been perpetrated, the appellant's motivation being rooted in his inflated ego and extravagant lifestyle, and the fact that the appellant exploited the fear and panic created by the 2008-2009 worldwide financial crisis by convincing clients and victims who trusted him to cash in their losing portfolios and convert the monies into safer investments. The sentencing judge considered prior authorities where sentences had been imposed in like situations, but ultimately concluded that they were of little assistance because of what he perceived to be the unique circumstances of this case and this offender. Ultimately, he concluded that the appropriate disposition was the maximum 14-year sentence. Part 3. Using a lack of remorse as an aggravating factor. The appellant raises numerous grounds of appeal. It is only necessary to deal with one. It relates to the use of the lack of remorse as an aggravating factor on sentence. The appellant apologized at the sentencing hearing for the fact that the victims had suffered at his hands. The sentencing judge rejected that apology as hollow. He found that the appellant had a complete lack of remorse. It was open to the trial judge to make that finding. The difficulty is with how that finding was put to use. A genuine expression of remorse can constitute an important mitigating consideration at the time of sentencing. When an offender demonstrates, through actions and or words, that he or she is genuinely remorseful for his or her conduct, it can show that the offender has some insight into his or her past actions and takes responsibility for them. Taking responsibility for past conduct is an important step towards rehabilitation and gives cause for hope that the offender may set on a path of change. The greater the genuine insight into past offending behavior, the greater the cause for hope. While a genuine expression of remorse can serve to mitigate a sentence, the opposite is not true. An offender cannot be punished for a lack of remorse. The reason is clear. Punishing an accused for failing to express remorse comes perilously close to punishing him or her for exercising the right to make full answer and defense. Even after a guilty verdict, an accused is entitled to maintain his or her innocence and cannot be punished for maintaining that stance. Crown counsel emphasizes that while remorse cannot typically be used as an aggravating factor on sentence, there are limited exceptions to the rule. This case is said to fall within those exceptions. Specifically, Crown Counsel points to the fact that a lack of remorse may shine a light on the likelihood of future dangerousness, as well as inform the applicability of sentencing principles involving specific deterrence and rehabilitation. Crown Counsel maintains that the trial judge's references to the absence of remorse should be understood as references to the appellant's attitude towards the crime, an attitude that underscored his likelihood of future dangerousness. As supported by the authorities just cited, the absence of remorse will sometimes be relevant in the sentencing process. 
That does not mean, though, that someone can be punished for failing to show remorse. While a lack of remorse may, in rare circumstances, inform potential future dangerousness, which can in turn inform the application of some sentencing principles, such as the suitability of emphasizing rehabilitation, it must never be used as an aggravating factor that is deserving of punishment. Despite Crown Counsel's capable argument on this point, I cannot read the sentencing judge as having used the absence of remorse in the limited way that she suggests. In my view, the reasons for sentence make clear that the appellant was actually punished for his lack of remorse in the face of what the trial judge perceived to be a strong prosecution case. The second paragraph of the sentencing judge's reasons following the heading, Aggravating Circumstances, reads as follows. Quote, Mr. Reeve has absolutely no remorse or empathy for the victims. During his trial evidence, Mr. Reeve insisted he had done nothing wrong despite the absolutely overwhelming evidence of fraudulent intent and fraudulent conduct deliberately perpetrated by Mr. Reeve over the indictment period from 2007 to 2009. End quote. The evidence at this trial and subsequent sentencing confirm the following comments found at page 9 of the pre-sentence report. Quote, the subject does not take responsibility for his offenses and shows no remorse for any of his offenses. Of concern, the subject appears to have little to no empathy for the victim's losses. He denies any intent to defraud investors in any of his companies. End quote. Later in the reasons, the absence of remorse was directly linked to the decision to impose the maximum custodial term. Quote, when the fraud was done and the money was gone, many, if not most, of the victims were left with lives of complete devastation, absolute destitution, and utter despair, which in many cases continues to this day. Mr. Reeve, like a true predator, walked away, until his arrest, with absolutely no empathy or remorse for the suffering and scarring left behind. If that scenario does not cry out for a maximum sentence, what does? End quote. These passages stand in direct opposition to the rule that an accused cannot be punished for an absence of remorse. Not only was the appellant's lack of remorse specifically identified as an aggravating factor, but its strength as an aggravating factor was directly linked to his having chosen to make full answer and defense in the face of what the sentencing judge saw as absolutely overwhelming evidence of his guilt. Punishing a person for maintaining their innocence based on an after-the-fact determination that the prosecution had a strong case could do serious harm to the criminal justice system. Accused persons are entitled to put the crown to its proof and cannot be punished or seen to be punished after the fact, simply because the Crown met that burden. Accused must be able to assert the right to full answer and defense, unencumbered by fear of future implications. To proceed otherwise would seriously undermine that fundamental right. The fact that the accused was punished for his lack of remorse in the face of a strong Crown case, and the sheer strength of that factor in the sentencing decision, is evidenced in the rhetorical question put just prior to the maximum custodial sentence being announced. The trial judge asked, quote, If that scenario does not cry out for a maximum sentence, what does? End quote. The scenario he was referring to had just been stated in the previous paragraph, walking away from the devastated victims with, quote, absolutely no empathy or remorse for the suffering and scarring left behind, end quote. In my view, the reasons led to the inescapable conclusion that, among other things, 
the appellant was punished for his failure to show remorse, including by exercising his right to a trial. Part 4. Did the error in principle have an impact on the sentence? It is an error in principle to use the absence of remorse as an aggravating factor, for which the accused should be punished. Where an error in principle is found to have had an impact on the sentence, the appellate court must perform its own sentencing analysis to determine a fit sentence. The question here is whether the trial judge's error in using the absence of remorse as an aggravating factor had an impact on the sentence imposed. Crown counsel argues that it did not, emphasizing that virtually every statutory and common law aggravating factor was present in this case, justifying the maximum sentence imposed. Therefore, even if remorse was wrongfully described as an aggravating factor, the 14-year sentence was still called for and this court should not interfere. I disagree. On the sentencing judge's own words, it was the victim's suffering and the appellant's lack of remorse for that suffering that called for the maximum term of imprisonment. Accordingly, I conclude that the error in principle is inextricably linked to the imposition of the maximum custodial term imposed in this case. The question now becomes, what factors should the court take into account in sentencing this appellant afresh? Part 5. Sentencing the Appellant Afresh In the event that this court sentences the appellant afresh, consistent with the Crown's position at trial, Crown counsel maintains that the maximum term of imprisonment should be imposed. Consistent with his position at trial, the appellant maintains that a custodial term of between 8 to 10 years imprisonment is appropriate. A. Proportionality and parity work in tandem. Proportionality and parity are key sentencing principles. Sentences must be proportionate to the gravity of the offense and the degree of responsibility of the offender. The principle of parity must also be taken into account involving the idea that similar offenders who commit similar offenses in similar circumstances should receive similar sentences. While the trial judge referred to some authorities that had been provided to him by counsel during the sentencing hearing, he found that they were not helpful due to the individual circumstances of each particular case. In the end, he disregarded those authorities altogether and imposed a sentence well above any sentence that has previously been imposed for like offenders in like circumstances. The fact that each crime has its own unique circumstances and is committed by its own unique offender does not mean that parity has no role to play in the sentencing process. While sentencing ranges cannot be seen as straitjackets, and under or overshooting a range will not on its own give rise to a demonstrably unfit sentence, parity remains a strong principle of sentencing, one that exists as an expression of the principle of proportionality. Consequently, the principle of proportionality is respected, in part, by referring to sentences imposed in other cases, sentences that reflect the collective experience and wisdom of the judiciary. B. Guidance from prior authorities. The parties point to the Queen and La Croix as the high watermark for sentences in large-scale frauds. In La Croix, Justice Wagner, as he then was, imposed a 13-year sentence. Mr. Lacroix pled guilty, but only on the eve of trial. He defrauded 9,200 victims over a four-year period. The victims lost almost $100 million and the impact on them was devastating. The ill-gotten gains funded the accused's lavish lifestyle. 
There was a breach of trust, and the sentencing judge found, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the accused's actions adversely affected the Canadian economy and shook investors. Justice Wagner referred to the case as unprecedented in the annals of Canadian legal history. In the Queen and Arez, the appellant was convicted of a large-scale Ponzi-like scheme involving numerous victims over several years, resulting in over $6 million in losses. He had a prior criminal record for fraud-related offenses and committed the bulk of the present fraudulent transactions while serving on a conditional sentence or on probation for previous forgeries. While he pled guilty, the mitigating effect of that plea was attenuated as he worked to have the guilty plea struck. He failed in that endeavor and then unsuccessfully appealed on the basis that the plea judge erred in refusing to strike the plea. Like this case, the victim impact was devastating, and the appellant used the money for his own personal gain. He received an eight-year sentence, described by this court as the top of the sentencing range. In the Queen and Izenga, the appellant engaged in a very serious breach of trust committing a large-scale fraud involving several hundred victims and about $37 million. Much of the money had been moved offshore. Although he pled guilty, he later challenged that plea. This court found that the plea was valid. While he appealed from the restitution order, he did not appeal from the eight-year custodial term that had been imposed after trial. This court commented on the fact that the prospects for his rehabilitation appeared good. Crown Counsel also points to the recent sentencing decision in the Queen and Holden, where Justice Stambrot imposed a 12-year sentence for a large-scale fraud involving a Ponzi scheme. The total amount of the fraud in that case was $54,159,737, with 65 victims, many of whom were vulnerable and unsophisticated. The victim impact was devastating. Many of the victims lost their life savings. The accused used the money for his own self-enrichment and to advance the Ponzi scheme. Importantly, unlike this case, the accused in Holden had both a Criminal and Securities Act record when he committed the crimes for which he was sentenced. In 1995, he was convicted of 46 Securities Act offenses. In 2000, he pled guilty to three counts of fraud over $5,000 and was sentenced to six years in custody for what this court described as a massive complex fraud perpetuated on hundreds of victims. Counsel also points to sentences imposed by trial courts, including in other provinces for large-scale Ponzi-related frauds. The Queen and Johnson, Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, 13 years decreased to 10 years on appeal. The Queen and Jones, Quebec, joint submissions for 11 years involving over 50 million in losses and over 150 victims. The Queen and Lewis, Ontario Superior Court, seven years. The accused stood in significant positions of trust in each of those cases, and the victim impact was equally devastating to the victim impact in this case. The appellant also points to the Queen and Drabinsky, where this court referred to the trial judge's determination of a five- to eight-year range for premeditated frauds involving public companies. While this court referred to the fact that the range may fluctuate somewhat at both ends of the spectrum, Crimes of this nature were said to normally attract significant penitentiary terms. Crown counsel says that Drabinsky must be approached with caution, 
particularly given that the offenses for which the appellants were sentenced were committed at a time prior to the increase in maximum sentences for fraud over $5,000 from 10 to 14 years. Crown Council relies upon the recent comments in Frisian at paragraph 97, where the majority points to increases in maximum sentences as reflecting Parliament's desire for such offenses to be punished more harshly. An increase in maximum sentence should be understood, therefore, as shifting the distribution of proportionate sentences for an offence. Therefore, Crown Council correctly points out that those authorities that were decided at a point in time prior to the increase in the maximum sentence must be considered in that light. One thing becomes clear through a review of the previous authorities. While there is a fairly broad range of sentence for larger-scale frauds of this nature involving significant breaches of trust, in the 8-12 to year range, a 14-year sentence has not been imposed, even in cases where the facts were more egregious than the ones here. Of course, there are all manner of aggravating and mitigating factors that can apply in a case that will land the sentence lower or higher within that range, or may drive the sentence below or above that range. Even so, the historical portrait painted by the range provides good guidance when sentencing for offenses of this nature. C. The Appropriate Disposition Frisian is clear in its guidance to appellate courts. Despite the need to sentence afresh where an error in principle that had an impact on the sentence is found, a large degree of deference still applies. As stated by the court in Frisian, quote, in sentencing afresh, the appellate court will defer to the sentencing judge's findings of fact or identification of aggravating and mitigating factors to the extent that they are not affected by an error in principle. This deference limits the number, length, and cost of appeals, promotes the autonomy and integrity of sentencing proceedings, and recognizes the sentencing judge's expertise and advantageous position, end quote. Taking this deferential approach, I accept the sentencing judge's findings of fact, including, as previously reviewed, about the amount of the fraud, the number of victims, the appellant's abuse of a position of trust, as well as his professional obligations, the length of time over which the fraud was perpetrated, the appellant's honing in on many particularly vulnerable people, the fact that he personally benefited from the crime, and the trail of human suffering left in the appellant's wake. There is a reason that denunciation and general deterrence are the primary sentencing principles when it comes to large-scale Ponzi-related frauds of this nature. While serious frauds may not involve physical violence, it is a mistake of serious proportion to think that they do not leave just as many seriously wounded behind, often with financial and mental scars that will never heal. The futures they work so hard to build are stolen from them because they trusted a professional who they justifiably believed had their best interests in mind. The devastating impact of frauds of this nature stretch beyond the direct victims who unwittingly find themselves in harm's way. They have the potential to adversely affect the stability of the Canadian economy financial systems and markets, as well as investor confidence in such markets. That is why Section 380.1 sub 1 sub b of the Code requires that sentencing judges take this factor into account as an aggravating factor on sentence. While there was no direct evidence that this fraud impacted the Canadian economy, some of the victims addressed the fact that their confidence in investing had been shaken to the core. Crown Council places fresh evidence before the court 
arguing that it assists with demonstrating the danger that the appellant continues to pose for the future. The fresh evidence consists of a two-page police affidavit and a parole board decision revoking the appellant's day parole. Section 687 sub 1 of the Criminal Code allows the court on a sentence appeal to receive evidence it thinks fit to require or receive. The well-known criteria for admitting fresh evidence on a conviction appeal also apply on sentencing. The evidence suggests that the appellant originally received accelerated parole. In violation of his parole officer's direction, he pursued the publication and sale of a book that is described as containing strategies on becoming financially secure. The appellant also met with a person who was described as being financially vulnerable and suggested an arrangement to lend her money to buy into a series of informational courses. She would then assist him in soliciting others to buy the book and take the courses at a cost of $5,000 per person. She reported that discussion to the police. The police then reported the matter to the appellant's parole officer. No criminal charges were laid. In its decision revoking parole, the parole board refers to positive aspects of the appellant's release into the community, his lack of any criminal charges, compliance with the specific conditions of release, and positive behavior in the community residential facility where he was staying. The decision also makes reference to the willingness of the appellant's employer to continue to work with him and, if needed, provide more structure in the working environment. Despite that positive behavior, the board concluded that having pursued the book matter, contrary to his parole officer's specific direction, the appellant showed a lack of insight into his offending cycle and prior behaviors. In the end, the board revoked the appellant's parole because of his deemed risk to the community. Crown Council argues that fresh evidence should be admitted because it has direct bearing on the question of what constitutes a fit sentence. The evidence is said to underscore that the appellant's attitude towards the offenses remains unchanged, that he has no respect for authority, continues with deceptive behavior, and has little hope for rehabilitation. The appellant cautions this court about using fresh evidence. He opposes the characterization of some of the evidence, particularly the reference to the person the appellant met as being financially vulnerable. The appellant argues that the allegations constitute aggravating factors, and, given how the Crown is endeavouring to use them, they must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The appellant argues that the Crown has failed to do so. It is important to start with the observation that the appellant can only be punished for the conduct that he was convicted of. He cannot be punished or be seen to be punished for conduct that is alleged to have occurred a year after his sentence was imposed. As well, I would observe that when a person breaches their parole, the parole board has the authority to deliver a decisive response, one that will often have a direct impact on the offender's liberty interest. That is what happened in this case. The appellant's breach of parole was acted upon and he was reincarcerated. Indeed, his last almost 10 months of incarceration have been the direct result of the revocation of his parole as a result of the activity that is now said to be relevant fresh evidence informing the fitness of sentence to be imposed on appeal. As noted in the Queen in Cyprus, fresh evidence addressing events that have occurred between the time of sentencing and the time of appeal may raise difficult issues which bring competing values into sharp relief. There are clear institutional limitations placed upon appellate courts, such that deciding sentencing appeals based upon after-the-fact developments 
could both jeopardize the integrity of the criminal process by undermining its finality and surpass the appropriate bounds of appellate review. In my view, the fresh evidence in this case could, at its highest, do no more than demonstrate a continued lack of insight by the appellant into his offenses, which, even this many years later, could signal a potential risk of reoffending. We do not need fresh evidence to satisfy us of this point. The trial and sentencing record are clear in this regard. Crown counsel also argues that virtually every aggravating factor was present in this case, justifying the maximum sentence. Those factors have been previously reviewed. They are rightly described as aggravating factors on sentence. The fact is, though, that these aggravating factors are present in almost all frauds of this nature. The task is not simply to check off the aggravating factors with a view to imposing the maximum sentence if each box is ticked. The key is to consider the circumstances underlying each factor and position it on the scale of seriousness. If proportionality and parity are to have meaning, calibrating the seriousness of the aggravating factors is critical to the sentencing exercise. Accepting the trial judge's view of the aggravating factors in this case, removing the factor that was infected by error, looking at the facts as he found them, and considering them against prior authorities, specifically this court's prior authorities, I find that a fit sentence is one of 10 years. Part 6. Conclusion. Leave to appeal sentence is granted, the appeal is allowed, the sentence is varied to 10 years. The credit for pre-sentence custody remains the same, the restitution order remains the same. The fine in lieu of forfeiture order remains the same, including the 10-year custodial term that the appellant must serve if he fails to make good on that order in accordance with its terms. All other aspects of the sentence remain the same. Released June 10, 2020. Appeal Justice Fairburn, Appeal Justice Nordheimer, Appeal Justice Young. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lindy. Check her out online at julielindyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.